So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, man fans. I'm Ollie Mann, and welcome to your epic October edition of The Modern Man, the monthly magazine show for your ears. Here's what's coming up. I was stuck in this situation where my job was to stop people doing what a little bit of me wanted to do. Double lives, court payouts, and military secrets. What happened when three men told the truth? Plus... The breadth of how people interpreted this situation and what their recommendations were blew my tiny little mind. Alex Fox asks if self-pleasure should ever be a guilty one and Ollie Peart goes bobbing for nipples. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and we've had a terrific reaction to our interview with Pippa last month. Kenny says, Ollie, I want to offer support for Pippa and her difficult decision to have an abortion. I grew up with one of my two older sisters having Down syndrome, and I truly believe it is only the families of those that have someone with a disability like that that really understand what it's like and the impact that it has on a family as a whole. When my wife was pregnant with our two kids... We felt abortion would be the only option for us if they had been diagnosed like my sister. The long-term care of an individual with Down syndrome is something that those who comment about how, quote, cute they are and how blessed the family are to have someone like that in their lives just don't get. Uh, And Anya says, Ollie, your interview with Pippa broke my heart. I hope she is able to forgive herself. I feel the concept of pregnancy has been fetishized in our culture, but a mother's mental and physical health and well-being should always be considered over and above the fetus. It is completely reasonable to value the quality of life of living people and consider it as a valid and important deciding factor. Uh, Well, it is a complicated issue, which is exactly the sort of thing that I'm drawn to like a magnet. So (laughs) I'm pleased that it resonated with so many of you. And I'm even more pleased, actually, to be able to tell you that since our interview, Pippa has now given birth to a healthy baby daughter, Seren. Uh, She says, Ollie, I feel really lucky to have been given a second chance. Mawson absolutely loves his little sister, and we are making the most of the newborn cuddles, but also looking forward to getting out on the trails and into the Australian bush as a family once Seren is ready to try out her bike trailer. Uh, Congratulations, Pippa, from all of us, and uh, good luck with that. Uh, Right, before we get going, and we do have an absolutely fantastic middle feature this month, by the way, it's cracking. Uh, Massive thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Beer52.com. Seriously, these guys make such a valid contribution to the world of alcohol. It's kind of incredible that they also have it in their hearts to throw money at the podcast that they love too, but they do. They're patrons of the arts, and they are progenitors of superb alcohol. (laughs) What work they do. They are the world's number one craft beer club, which frankly speaks for itself. But I'm going to say it, they're my favourite. 
When their crate of eight delicious beers arrives on my doorstep, I audibly hurrah. It's just so good. The selection is so good. And if you don't believe me, you can try it for yourself. Go to beer52.com slash modern to receive your first trial box of eight free craft beers, plus a magazine, plus a snack. All you cover is the postage just for listening to this show. And if you order before Christmas 2021, they will chuck in two extra beers for you. Merry Christmas, everybody. That is beer52.com slash modern. Go and get it. Beer52.com slash modern. Free beer, everybody. Uh, and thanks again to them. Uh, right, coming up this month, you will learn what Flix Disco was famous for. You will learn how to lanolize. And you'll learn how many tampons NASA thinks you need in space. Let's go. Time for the Zeitgeist, brought to you by Manscaped. Your trends tested with Ollie Peart. Ollie, how is your knitting going? It's the question we all have front and centre of our brains today. Yeah, not bad, actually. I, I've i got some new wool. This is like my new source for wool. <laughs> Stop press. Seriously, from a charity shop, because without without being sort of like a bit crude about it, old people die, so then when their houses get cleared out and there's loads of wool in there, they chuck it in the charity shop. Well, they don't. Their relatives do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. But it's a really great place for wool. My, my next thing that I want to do is a jumper. I'm pleased that it's still going, because sometimes you say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. Oh, yeah, I'll be down, you know, roasting sausages on the beach every day, and I think that you won't. You're never going to pick seaweed <laughs> again. But this, good, I'm glad is actually something that is still happening. Um, you'll recall that we promised last episode that the first man fan to set up a new monthly beer money subscription at modernman.co.uk slash beer would win your precious snood. Does that mean that somebody's actually given us some money then? Not just somebody, Ollie. The contenders included Caitlin Forster, Lauren Godbowl, Rob Cooper and Lisa Cotton. A Godbowl sounds like something you could knit from wool in a charity shop, doesn't it? But <laughs> Michelle from Colorado got there first. So congratulations, Michelle. You have won Ollie Peart snood. That also means that my knitting's going international. So that <laughs> yeah. means I'm, I'm basically now, I'm an international fashion designer. You're haute couture. It's going straight on LinkedIn. Uh, let's talk about your task for the month now. Um, Katie from Milwaukee uh, challenged you to check out the North American trend for baby showers uh, in anticipation that it will probably grow in popularity here in the UK. Uh, you are an expectant father. Remind us, when is the due date? Pip's going in on the 8th of November uh-huh. to be induced. So it's like five weeks away. That's before the next episode comes out, isn't it? There should be a baby pit in the world. Yeah, that's... Um... Oh, that's terrifying. Well... As you might appreciate if you ever listen to our How to Be a Dad episodes, which I, I know you haven't because you only listen to the sound of your own voice on this show, <laughs> you'd know that the feeling as a man you often get then is that this is the last month that's actually about you. Like forever. Like from then on, it's about someone else. You're supporting someone else, two other people at least. I will try my absolute best, though, to try and make everything about me in the future. But mm. You never know. It, it might work, but I'm expecting it probably won't. Uh, so, okay, so what have you found out about baby showers? Explain, what's the, like, the 101, what is a baby shower? Well, a baby shower is when, I'm going to say people, because it's not just women, get together before the baby is, is born, and it's literally to shower the mother with gifts. It's kind of like a Hindu, but for an expectant mother. And they have loads of, loads of presents, and then they play loads of games, and generally have a good time, and they all drink and eat cake, apart from the, uh, the pregnant lady who can't do any of that kind of stuff, but it doesn't matter because she's been given a load of presents. That, that's how it works. And I think my understanding of baby showers was kind of based on 
the letter that we had from Katie, which is just it's like these really disgusting, stupid games that's completely pointless and it's really garish and it's a bit like, oh god, why the hell would you want that? What games did she mention? She mentioned a game where you melt various chocolate bars in nappies in the microwave. Oh. Right? I mean, whatever happens next, that's just so rank. Yeah, so you do that, and then you pass it around, and then you have to guess what chocolate bar it is. Like, what kind of fucked up, twisted, weird <laughs> thing is that? I mean, do you remember, actually, in one of, one of the episodes, we we did a game with Alex Fox, didn't we? We had to scratch and sniff that card, and one of them yes. was a, a soiled nappy. I, do you remember? that? Was... Uh, no, because I erase all of our Christmas specials from my brain the moment they happen, because otherwise I'd be permanently scarred. There's another one coming along in December, everybody. So the principle of that just completely turned me off uh, of the idea of a of a of a baby it's shower. Not for anyway, you, so I did, Ollie before... Pitt. It's not for you. It's for your long suffering fiance. Well, you are absolutely right. Um, so when when this challenge came about, obviously my first port of call was to go to Pip and say, "Hey, look, uh, I'm going to organise you a baby shower." Number one tip: if you are thinking of planning a baby shower for somebody, mm. do check whether or not they want one. <laughs> Was she not keen? I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a baby shower for you. It's for the podcast. And she said, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, I, I bet if this was for the one show, she'd have said, oh, go on then. Possi- possibly. She had a sense but- of the calibre of gift you might come home with, I reckon. And that, Well, her reasoning is completely just. And actually, I think it's one of the reasons that perhaps baby showers aren't everywhere in this country. And it's that... The way that we've found our pregnancy is that people have started giving us stuff already. Okay, so we've had, we've been inundated with stuff, particularly because we're having a child slightly later in life. Lots of our friends have already had kids, so they're already offering us a whole heap of stuff. So we've got loads and loads of stuff. She's like, look. I love how you're talking in the third person about the fact that I have a travel cot mattress <laughs> under my bed and a stair guard, <laughs> yes. which I trip over on a nightly basis, which I've kept in storage for you for the last six months until we see each other. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, you people know, like me. People like you are trying to sort of empty their lofts into my lounge. At the yeah. That's basically what's happening. So we have loads of stuff. And Pip's like, look, I don't. Oh, I've got a great playpen. Just you wait till the first year comes around. It's a bit broken because he smashed it by just running into the wall repeatedly like a trapped killer whale. <laughs> uh, and the other reason was that she was like, I don't want to be the centre of attention. And I think a lot of that is based on, you know, our, our perceptions of what a baby shower is. We look at those, sort of that American model. You see them on American TV and it's like everybody's just sort of cooing around this mother that's in the middle with all these presents around them. Well, I've sort of seen it on Keeping Up with the Kardashians. But you just think... What do normal people do? Like, because you imagine that the trend that you're seeing on there is for people that have got lots of money that are being filmed to, you know, pose with the latest invention. But that's not most mums, is it? Well, this is the thing, right? So there's a company called Before Baby, and it's run by uh, a woman called Crystal. She's been doing it for 10 years. And she set it up because her friend put on a baby shower for her. And she was like, it was shit. I can do better. And she was just really annoyed with... Wow, what a generous story to have as your origin story. <laughs> can I, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, all right? She, did, she definitely didn't say it was shit, but she thought these decorations yeah. aren't right. It's really like, it feels really cheap and it's really tacky and it's sort of, it's, it's aimed tacky. at... It's tacky. Yeah. It undermines me as a person. <laughs> if anything, my friends made me feel worse. These are, these are aimed at kids. Why? The kid hasn't even arrived yet. Let's make them more sort of adult themed. The main thing that she says people enjoy is is the getting together and having an opportunity to relax chat have a bit of cake have a drink obviously a non-alcoholic drink as if you're the pregnant lady and kind of just just have an opportunity to talk so these gross eat shit out of a nappy games and those kinds of things <laughs> aren't aren't really part of that instead she was saying that 
the games that they put on are, are, are catered for the group because actually they find rather than it just being a load of a load of women they get a real mix like half of her baby showers that she organizes more than half of the baby showers that she organizes or have men in them and there'll be older people there as well within the mix so they try and come up with games and activities and things that will sort of cater for everybody does this kind of gross gender reveal thing form any part of her planning as well because i've seen that online like north americans on instagram post these videos don't they where they burst a balloon and it's pink confetti so that means it's going to be a girl that sort of thing yeah so gender reveal parties for her are now getting requested more than baby showers and she does them as well and she sort of occasionally incorporating both so she does these separate ones you can have a gender reveal party or a baby shower but they're kind of becoming a bit of a hybrid so they're kind of changing you know what a baby shower is 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 changing it's not just a load of women getting together drinking prosecco it's actually let's let's get together let's have a nice meal maybe an afternoon tea and also the gender reveal which is a nice thing i mean we didn't have one we don't even know the gender so can you exclusively do a gender reveal <laughs> on the christmas edition of the modern man yes i can i can i'll do it shall i shall i not look until the podcast and then when we're recording i'll unv- <laughs> i'll unveil the actual genitals no, don't do that okay i won't i won't do that there are still some weird games around in baby showers that you can try and you can make them sophisticated if you want, but they're not really. Like One of the ones that keeps popping up is nappy cakes. You can actually order these from Amazon if you wanted to, but the idea of them is that you make them yourself and you can do it as a game where you basically get a whole bunch of nappies and you create a thing that looks like a cake out of them, like a tiered thing. No, but then what? You don't eat it. You don't like, cover it in caramel. Nope. It's just a sculpture, and then you right, can okay. you can just have them there, and then when you need them, you just take take the nappies off. Oh, okay, so you do use them; you don't waste them. Yeah, you use the nappies. The nappies aren't wasted. They, you can then use them afterwards. But it's like a, it's just a sculpture out of nappies. It's such a weird idea. Another yeah. one is <laughs> nipple bobbing. I know what the two words mean. I just I can't fuse them. You chuck them in, and then you bob for them. You bob for teats. But again, teats that you might then go on to use on baby bottles, right? You don't just buy a whole load of plastic for a stupid novelty game. No, 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 of course, you're going you're gonna to use them. Sterilise them first, yeah. obviously, but you're going to yeah, use them gonna afterwards. I was going to say, sterilise them afterwards after a whole lot of adults have stuck their face in a communal basin full of nipples. Ugh. But, it, but, it, but it's no wonder that it's kind of, the, the, the baby shower's kind of changed because it, it, it's just, let's take something that's quite kiddie and associate with the baby and integrate it somehow into a game that's completely pointless and not useful to anybody. But also turn it into like bachelor party hijinks, which just feels like the wrong vibe, actually. Yeah, completely wrong. What sort of budget are people putting aside for this stuff? Yeah, well, it's very, very broad. People were spending roughly 91 quid. But if you want to organise it properly and get a proper planner, you know Meghan Markle had one, right? (laughs) Just to pick an ordinary expectant mother. Yep. I'm just highlighting the broad scope for the budget of these things. I know, but I mean, you know, I saw her wedding on TV. That's different to my wedding, isn't it? But go on, yeah. Half a million dollars. It was It was suggested right. that she yeah. paid. And it wasn't a huge thing. It was only 15 people. Okay, so then. the budget is somewhere between <laughs> 91, 91 pounds and, and half, half a million dollars. dollars. Great. Thanks. I'm glad you narrowed that down and your research is so, exemplary. So I've just, I've, I've narrowed it down. Yes, exactly. So uh, yeah. that, that, that. Somewhere between those two figures. That's are you disappointed? Are you disappointed well, with my results? I'm a bit disappointed for your fiance in a way because I understand she didn't want the party, but now she hasn't got the gifts, has she? I mean, you know, you could have you could have already stepped up into your new role as parental provider, Ollie, with this task. 
you'd have just sold it to her in a different way. You know, this was your opportunity, wasn't it, to get given a whole load of free gifts from all these different companies that wanted a free plug on the show. Now she's not going to have that. She's not going to have the latest rattle. Well, look, I take issue... She's not have the latest travel pillow. I take issue with that because I feel like um, I've sort of unintentionally succeeded at this task, even though it sounds like I haven't. Because throughout the last few months, we have organised various get-togethers with friends and families because they're all over the place because of work and COVID and lots of other things. And at each of those, by the sounds of the way that baby showers have evolved and developed, they were in their own little way, mini baby showers that we have organised. Did people give you gifts? Yeah. I mean, that's the crucial. People gave yeah. us gifts. So th- and they did that without you asking. It's just like, come and meet us before we come have Come and meet anymore. us. You know, and that's the other thing that's happened. You know, my parents, and I'm sure this happens for a lot of people as well, they, they, they said, look, we want to get you something. We want to give yeah, you yeah. something that you need or that you would like. So do you think they are going to catch on in Britain? I think they're already a thing. They are a thing, but but they're not they're not what you think they are. And Crystal, who organizes them, she said that the the American version of it from 10 years ago actually it's not really happening in the states either. They're not really doing that anymore. Yes, there's a few examples of people doing the gross game and the you know other weird stuff. But it's evolved. And if they are presenting each other with nappies with or without chocolate in uh diana has been in touch following our joke last month about you knitting nappies for your baby to say did you know reusable nappies are a thing and that includes wool this is some use for your wool that you've got lying around your house ollie i didn't know that you could make them out of wool isn't it just going to leak everywhere she says if you use wool knitted into either shorts or leggings and lanolize it which means adding lanolin aka sheep fat it works as a waterproof and antibacterial layer to wear on top of an absorbent nappy made of bamboo, cotton or hemp. So it's kind of like a nappy cosy. Okay, my, my understanding of, of nappies is that they hold in shit and shit smells. Mm. So why would you then want a nappy that also smells? I suppose because you value the environment more than you do your own nostrils. That's the point. Isn't it? <laughs> and you are someone who's professed to be a green crusader on the show before. Yeah, well, it depends how bad the smell is. Let's see how good my green credentials are after this baby starts shitting everywhere. Right, well, there we are. I think we'll all agree that we've uh, passed some time uh, up until the most significant <laughs> moment of your life. <laughs> why why are you so dismissive of my efforts at the baby shower? Listen. I'm not. I'm just... Look, I'm just saying you've got this very significant moment coming up in your life and this is how you've chosen to spend your last moments of freedom. You know, it's, your, it's on you. I mean, I'm, you know, I have to squeeze this in between picking up my son from primary school. You, you didn't have that unbelievable we're um we're going to give you the month off kindly this is as uh, i'm now speaking as your employer not just your friend we're going to give you the month off ollie you're going to get a month's unpaid parental leave from the modern man um so when we next see you it's going to be our christmas special so when i come back i'm going to have a nice warm welcome of sucking on a flavored condom or something um but we're all coming to bournemouth so that we can record with you because <gasps> we wouldn't want to we wouldn't want to do christmas without you ollie oh and also we wouldn't want to give you an excuse not to turn up yeah well actually it's weird how nice you're being about it all actually giving me a month off but that makes me really really worried about how difficult it's going to be having a child it's like you're anticipating that like many of my challenges <laughs> i'm going to just fail no, actually, I think you're going to come through like you did when you made the bath salts. Okay, okay good. <laughs> a decent effort. Yeah, okay. <laughs> a good a good effort, just about all right. Not going to ruin anyone's life, and you're going to give it a damn good go. Yeah. Um, before we sign off, uh, until Christmas, though, we must thank 
Our sponsors for the zeitgeist, manscaped.com. Yeah, you could join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and grab yourself the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which has the light on it, a revolutionary change in ball trimming for me. Are you going to carry on your ball trimming regime as a new father? Bearing in mind, let's be honest, no one's going to be looking down there for many, many months. Yeah, because I like how it feels. Like, I like yes. having a smooth scrotum because I feel, mm. I don't know, there's something about it which is which is lovely. It's like wearing a good pair of brogues, isn't it? I know I'm exactly play the part. what I you am mean. Michael Douglas in Wall Street. Yes. He'd have smooth balls inside some Manscaped boxer briefs that he got free with the Performance Package 4.0, wouldn't he? Michael Douglas almost certainly has smooth balls. And and also, right, it feels really nice in the in the Manscaped boxes. They're very silky and light. And if you get the Performance Package 4.0, you not only get the Lawnmower 4.0 and the pants we're discussing, you also get the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Trimmer. That is more relevant, isn't it, for introducing the baby to the grandparents? Ollie, want to be looking your best in your cavities? Yeah, that's true. Can you also just Weed Whack your grandparents' holes? <laughs> just subtly. Whilst they're not looking. <laughs> While they're not looking. Before you look after my child, just come here a second. <laughs> just have a little, <laughs> little zhuzh up Grandad, their nostrils. Come over here. Look at this. Just bend over. Just look. Look at this. Look, it's really cute. Bend over. What's she's done? <laughs> what hole also- are you trimming? No, no, nose and ears. Don't use it on your anus. Right. No, but they do have other products that you can use down there, including the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Toner. Perfect gift for Grandad. <laughs> and get 20% off and free shipping with our code MAN. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code M-A-N-N at manscaped.com. Ollie, have an amazing uh, first month of, of parenthood. I will. I will uh, I will be sure to send you a picture upon its arrival. I, I, I yeah. will message you before I message my family. And, uh, and then once you have messaged your family, let's do one for the public as well, at The Modern Man on Twitter. But... Um, Maybe do run that past your fiancé this time first Yeah, we publish. I, I think I ought to check everything from now on. Um, and we'll see you at Christmas time. Yes! Right, in just a moment you will meet my guests Ken, Martin and Kevin. It's a staggering story. I say wow a lot in this month's middle feature. Uh, but first, it's time for our record of the month. It is the new one from Self Esteem. It's called Moody. Her new album drops on the 22nd. Enjoy. Our guests this month have never met, but their lives have, through no fault of their own, been turned upside down in strikingly similar ways. And only now, decades later, are those wrongs starting to be made right. The first voice you'll hear, Ken, grew up on a council estate in Scotland in an old coal mining town and became a police officer. This was a time of bitter fights between miners and the government, so to avoid a conflict of interest, his chief inspector diverted him to the countryside. He deployed me to a place called Brechin, which uh, is 
absolute heartbeat country. It's in, it's all glens and I had more sheep than people on my beat. It's one of the biggest geographical beats in Scotland, but it's mainly hills and heather. A beautiful part of the world, which I hold very dear to my heart. Even though it was a rural beat, it was quite rough, you know, and, and I was the only cop for miles. It was 35 minutes before any assistance could get to you if you were in trouble, which didn't happen re- very often. But when it did, my goodness, it would go horribly pear-shaped. And that's what happened. It was a, a brawl outside. Uh, it was called Flix Disco, and it had the reputation for having the first laser in Scotland. So busloads would come from miles around to be enthralled with this green laser thing that flashed away. <laughs> I was the only police officer on duty. You you have to just knuckle in and get down to it. Uh, but I was thrown through a plate glass window and wow. uh, quite badly injured. So much so that it, it was a case of kind of missing a wheelchair by about an hour. It was pretty, pretty grim. However, the the brightness of that is at the time there was uh, a deal where severely injured police officers could partake of rehabilitation courtesy of the military. And there's a, a to this day, still there, RAF Headley Court, which is a joint medical centre for the rehabilitation of uh, members of the armed forces. So I ended up there. It was very, very physical. They would be pushing you to do things that... A, a normal citizen would say no, and you couldn't force them to, but you're in a military environment, so it's get on with it, with peer pressure, with people that are in a worse state than you. It's a different type of rehab. Because I was there and in that environment, my confidence in being a police officer had been severely dented. I wasn't sure I wanted to go back into that. And this gave me an opportunity. I thought, well, you know, it's a uniform organisation. It's not that different to what I joined at 18. Um, I've only been in the police force eight or nine years. What's not to like? Unlike Ken, Kevin had wanted to be in the Royal Air Force ever since he was a kid. I remember there was a BBC show called Fighter Pilot, which followed uh, candidates going right from selection at Biggin Hill at the time all the way through their initial officer training and then through into their, their initial flying training and so on through to being on a fast jet squadron. And, uh, you know, that was it, totally and utterly hooked. And, uh, you know, I joined the Air Cadets. Yeah, because it's quite a big deal if that really is your yeah. goal, to fly, to personally be at the controls. You've got You've got to be thinking about science and eyesight and fitness yes very much so i mean it was um you know i won a flying scholarship and went and got my private pilot's license when i was 17 wow and you know i was very much focused on joining the raf and becoming a pilot now unfortunately my eyesight i knew at the time was starting to potentially need glasses in the near future and back then it was a case of if you needed glasses, you would not be selected to fly. Yeah. If if you were already flying and you needed glasses, that was fine. But they wouldn't take you on from day one needing glasses. So it came to the choice of do I go to university, get a degree and then go into the RAF afterwards? At the time, my head said, no, your, your eyesight's not going to be good enough. Uh, go straight for the RAF. 
So all your eggs were in that basket. They were very much so. After finishing the initial officer training, the the first thing you do is uh, you go off to your basic flying training. Um, For myself, that was in Linton-on-Ouse in Yorkshire. It was high pressure. You were starting to fly and you were flying a jet straight away. So you had a few weeks of ground school training where you learned about the aircraft and so on and and, uh, the basics of aerodynamics and flight theory and so on. And then you did some simulator work. But then very soon you started strapping yourself into um, a small two-seat jet with an instructor and starting your lessons. Did you enjoy it? Yes and no. (laughs) You had so much to focus on. Um, You know, not only the actual physical demands of flying, which are quite high in a fast jet aircraft, uh, the coordination that's required, the mental gymnastics that are required for navigating, communicating with people on on the ground, communicating with other people in the air. It is no wonder that so few people get through there. It is it is high intensity and it was quite clear i i didn't have the capacity to be both coordinated at the controls of the aircraft and maintain all the other things that were required that must have been difficult it was you've got to remember this was back in 1987 88 so this was before gps and so on so a lot of aircraft in the RAF still had navigators, that second person who was reading the maps, planning the trips, planning the fuel, monitoring the fuel. So it was still a high demand activity, but it was divorced from perhaps the, the physical coordination that was required at the same time. So that I did excel at. So, you know, my role was as an air interceptor and it was very much picking up an enemy aircraft, calculating the best way to get into a position behind that aircraft to launch your missiles um, and then get close enough if the missiles hadn't worked for your pilot to take over and use the guns. So, you know, that was what we were there for. We were there training for that role. What was going on in your personal life at the time? I was so focused on the career, actually, I didn't have a great deal of a, of personal life. It was There was just so intense in the training. I just didn't consider a personal life but as as I was progressing through that and I was becoming more familiar with the role that capacity came along and so you know we we had events in the mess and we met people and obviously we went out on the town in Dundee and so on and um, I I actually met my wife fairly whirlwind romance um, all seemed to work very well and so we got married I can't remember how old I was now, (laughs) 23, 24, something like that. It was only after a number of years that I realised that I wasn't getting something from the relationship that I knew was important. And I knew as well I wasn't giving her what was important for for her for her health and happiness and well-being did you know what that was not really you know we we had a uh, we had a daughter that again all seemed to help bond the family together but after a while again those feelings of something wasn't right i i wasn't satisfied in the relationship in a way that my head was telling me you should be 
in in a in a relationship. It was it was almost you know one of those oh I we need to sit down and have a talk type moments, and um, she said yes I've got something to say as well, and so I said okay after you. Um, and she said, oh, I'm pregnant again. And so I just shut down and said, oh, no, okay, well then that's great. Um, what I had to say doesn't matter then. And so I tried very hard to, to make it work. I had one daughter and there was a, another child on the way. So it had to work. That's, that's what I was telling myself. I had to make it work. But as time moved on, it became very clear that as much as I cared for her, I couldn't be the husband that she deserved, um, both in that relationship sense and in a physical sense. And so that came to a head shortly after the birth of our second child. And um, we separated. And initially, she didn't know why other than I'd said, it just isn't working because I had this massive fear that if she knew that it was because I was having feelings of being gay, that she would report me to the RAF. And at that time, it was very much a case of, that's it, you're out. That's right. In the 1980s and 90s, it was still illegal to be gay in Britain's military. Homosexuality had been decriminalised in England and Wales in 1967. In Scotland, that change happened later, in 1981. But all the way through the 20th century, if you served in the armed forces, you could lose your job, your medals and your pension, just for being gay. I, I was married at the time, and um, I should have twigged because I kind of fancied the best man when I fancied my wife you know the, the writing was very much on the wall there and Kevin Porter if you're listening to this I apologize but the the law had just changed in Scotland were you in love with your wife yes yes very much so we were only married three years um I think she knew before I did my wife was very much into amateur dramatics and um I remember I, I used to go and have to attend these blasted things in the local th little village hall every Christmas, you know, and sit there as a local copper giving support to the community, thinking, what am I doing here? But inside me recognising that some of the, the the men on stage, I found their effervescence, their sheer joy of life, their campness, maybe, very attractive, and I couldn't work out why. This was a time when, because I was so-called pretty police, I'd be put into public toilets and plain clothes to try and entrap people um, right, yeah. in public toilets. That's what, you, that's what it was like then. And I became friends with, with uh, these guys and girls and found a company, a breath of fresh air. And it, it started to awaken something inside me that I didn't even realize at the time I'd suppressed. There was no support. There's no such thing as gay chat lines or helplines or anything like that. There was nothing. There was nothing at that time. You just had to get on with it. And the macho side in me took over. It just said, this is not happening. 
talk about coming from the frying pan into the fire. It had just been made legal in Scotland, and I thought, no, I'm not having any of that. And I then joined the military, the RAF, where it was wholly illegal. So I, in a way, had chosen a lifestyle that would suppress what I felt was something wrong inside me, a, a defect in me. Where did you get posted? Most people that join the RAF police then join the civilian police, or you know, there's a natural progression to that. I did it the other way about. So I came to the RAF with a huge skill set that they deeply wanted. So I never saw an aircraft, never got the sniff of an aeroplane. I was sent straight to Strike Command Headquarters at RAF High Wycombe. It's the centre for commanding United Kingdom Air Forces, and it's where the Commander-in-Chief of United Kingdom Air Forces to this day uh, will be based. And we were part of a very small unit that was dedicated to policing that. We were live-armed, and we would um, protect very, very senior officers uh, 24 hours a day. So wherever they were? Wherever they were. So if they were um, travelling off-site to go home, we would be with them um, right. in their home. We would police outside that home. And then in the 80s as well, presumably, there was a threat of IRA terrorism towards those people. This was also a time of Greenham Common, which wasn't that very far away from High Wycombe. That was the anti-nuclear protest, right? Yeah, band a bomb, that sort of thing, CND. And so that's a split-second decision, isn't it? Has this guy just hit me with an egg or have they hit me with a grenade? Yeah, well, you're trained. You were, you were given two things to shout. You know, I have police stop or I fire. And if they came towards you, you drew your weapon and you um, would arm it. Uh, that's a live round going into the, the weapon. And scream again, live armed RAF, please stop or I fire. And if they continued, they was, you were supposed to open fire. Sounds like you must have been pretty good at your job to be trusted with such a senior position going straight into the RAF. Well, with some modesty, I, yes, I was. I, I was humbly uh, given the baton of honour as uh, best RAF police officer of that, that intake. And when I was deployed to RAF High Wycombe, after two odd years there, I was given the Commander-in-Chief of United Kingdom Air Force's personal commendation for services to the Air Force, which was quite a thing. So homosexuality was illegal in the RAF. You had these growing feelings towards other men. You realised you found men attractive. How did you process that? Well, it, it was difficult because there would be random searches you know you had a room to yourself but there would be a random search of your room just to to check for anything that uh, was contrary to military law and bear in mind i was i was occasionally the one that had to do these searches so you know i who pleases the police yeah i was stuck in this situation where my job was to stop people doing what a little bit of me wanted to do yeah and to be clear, this in this era could have been a copy of the Gay Times, right? Could have been a, a book oh, by absolutely. Joe Orton yeah. might have raised suspicion. Yeah, if they had if they had an inkling, they would follow you. So they would watch where you want. They would they would put officers into the very few gay pubs that were available at the time, just to see who was going in. You were perceived to be a risk to national security, homosexuality was seen as an in for reds under the beds or whatever you want to call it. Around the same time, Martin was training at Bassingbourne as an infantry soldier. He was dyslexic, he'd left school with just one GCSE in music and signed up to the army at the age of 18 when he was still coming to terms. 
with his sexuality. We'd gone to Germany for a break and uh, it was my first introduction to brothels. All of my friends were kind of like, oh, it's your birthday, it's your birthday. So we're all clubbing together and we're going to stick you in this brothel and you're going to have a marvellous time and you're 18. And I'm, kind of, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, what's going on here? So you sort of go along with it. Um, and they kicked me into this brothel and there was this great big German lady. I was kind of like, oh my God, I got my Deutschmarks out and I gave her another 50 and just said, you sit there for 20 minutes and, you know, we'll get through this. Quite deceitful, really. Um, but after about 20 minutes, I appeared and, of course, everyone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it just gets buried again. You're one of the boys again. I did a tour of Northern Ireland as well. And we went to Cyprus for a while. Um, came back and I'd injured my knee and I was having some rehab. We got talking to this guy. We were talking about music. Um, and it turns out that this guy was a, a, a musician within the army. So I said, oh, that's really interesting. How, you know, how does that happen? What, what happens? And he's like, Do, well, have you got any musical experience? So I said, yeah, I've got grade five. And he said, whoa, okay, listen, can I tell the bandmaster? So I said, well, yeah, of course you can. So... Um, I hadn't played for a couple of couple of years at that point, and suddenly I was called to the bandmaster's office, and he said to me, "Play something for me." And I tried to play some bits and bobs. I hadn't played for a while, um, do some scowls and stuff like that. He said to me, well, "Do you know what? You, this is quite good. We could make you a tradesman at this point." I, I was sort of sitting in a barrack room with eight men one day. And then obviously overnight I'd, I'd audition and the bandmaster was like, you're coming tomorrow. And within three days they said, well, we're off on tour. We're going to go on tour of Europe. Public shows. Doing public shows, public concerts, just raising the profile of the regiment. I'd become more in touch with myself and who I was and what I was. I'd, I remember I, we had a weekend's leave. It was like three months into this course and um, I thought I'm going to try a, a gay pub sort of walk around a block about 15 times before I plucked up the courage to go in. And lo and behold, there's two other musicians sitting in the corner. And I was kind of like, what are you doing here? And they're kind of like, probably the same as what you're doing here. Two musicians from your course? Yeah, from my course. That really opened my eyes at that point. And I, I was kind of thinking, wow. One side of me was really, really frightened and really, really scared because I, all of a sudden, I'd become exposed. You've just been outed. Yeah, but the other side of me was kind of like, "Well, hang on a minute, you're not your own." And did you end up in a relationship with another man? I did. I met somebody. He was a, a civvy. He's kind of like, "So come on, I know you're not a builder. What do you do for a living?" So I said, "Oh." Shh. Uh, I'm in the army and of course he was like whoa really and, and that all became very exciting um, did he know that it was illegal yeah he knew and I was like no don't come to the camp do not come to the camp under any circumstances I will always come and see you um, and I sort of used to spend my weekends at his place and obviously become more and more and more exposed to gay life meanwhile Kevin now separated from his wife had met someone too now based up at RAF Kinloss, one of the few ways he could make contact with other gay men was via a premium rate gay chat line. The guy that I started seeing lived uh, in Worcester. So it was a nice long distance <laughs> relationship. So it was very much a case of, yeah, that's far enough. I'm pretty sure there's unlikely to be someone who will accidentally see me 
um, going into a bar or, or meeting up with him. But it did mean that you could only see each other, really, when you're on R&R, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. So I had to take leave. I took as many long weekends as I as I could, and it would be either a train or um, I had a motorcycle, um, you know. So you you had those brief moments that we, we met up with each other um, for a long weekend. And then, of course, there's that whole going back to work afterwards and the usual natural curiosity from people. Are, oh, how was your weekend? What did you do? And that total panic having to think, OK, I've got to remember not to say he, I've got to say she, and that switching of pronouns or just being completely gender neutral in everything you were trying to talk about for fear of giving the game away. On his weekends in London, Ken was plucking up the courage to go into a gay bar. I didn't have much confidence on the gay scene to speak to anybody. But I saw someone sat at the bar with lime green hair, um, wearing an old RAF bloomer jacket, as they used to call it, sort of a, a fighter jacket. Very effervescent, having a great time, and thought, that looks like an interesting guy. He was living in London. Uh, he and I hit it off big time. I fell in love with him. And he was obviously going to stay in London. And because I was Mr. Goody Two-Shoes in the military, I was about to be promoted. I mean, significant promotion. I, I was being offered a commission, so uh, an officer rank. But it meant, after significant training, being deployed probably to Germany, which was quite a big base at the time. You had to be very careful if, if at the time there's no email or anything like that, you know, it's not even mobile phones. So we write to each other, but you, his letters had to come through the central station post office. If he sent a parcel, he won, on one occasion he sent a, a, I think it was a Valentine's Day gift of a, there was a craze for teddy bears and tins and, and metal cans. You, know, you, you send a huge teddy bear and a big metal can. It, well, it went to the central post office at High Wycombe and created a security alert because they couldn't work out what, what was this organic <laughs> substance in a metal box, you know. So you can imagine the if he had signed it from Colin, all hell would have let loose. But he used a, a nickname. So people just thought, oh, his girlfriend sent him a teddy bear. But that was a close shave. That could have, that could have had serious repercussions. And up in Kinloss for Kevin, those repercussions were about to get very real. We actually joined um, a motorcycle club, gay motorcycle club. It was in the good old days where you actually had a membership card and I foolishly had that card in my wallet and nice. lost that wallet, which somebody found and handed in to the RAF police. And was there any cloak and dagger about the name of the motorcycle club? I mean, it had Gay Bikers Motorcycle Club on, <laughs> so it was it was obvious what it was, and my name and signature were on the back of it. Stupid, really. Why why did I even have it in the wallet? But that's where it was. And I I was returning from a training flight, and we landed, and the wing commander, boss of the squadron, met the aircraft, which in itself is a fairly unusual thing to to happen and he comes on board as I'm packing away my kit for after the flight and he just says um yeah just just leave that and come with me I, I I think I knew straight away what it was and 
you know, he drove me to the RAF police station on the camp and I was arrested and cautioned. I, I remember they passed the membership card across the desk to me and uh, the the police officer who was in, um, questioning me said, is this your membership card? And I sort of looked at it and said, well, it's got my name on the back, hasn't it? So it's a very good chance it is. And then there started the questions about, are you gay? Are, are you a homosexual? Are you are you practicing? Do you know any other homosexuals on, on the camp? So wow. they, they, you know, they were interested in knowing if I knew of any other network of gays on the site. Certainly there was no indication from any of the, the RAF leadership that um, there was any way it would mean anything other than a discharge. So, you know, we, we finished the interview. I was immediately suspended. So I went back to my room in the officer's mess. I started the process of coming out. In Ken's case, however, he made the decision to tell his superiors himself. Something has to give and it's not going to be the relationship so it's got to be the job, the job I loved, the job I was proud to do, the job I was good at, but it didn't seem to want me or my lifestyle. Time to go. How did you approach that? I went to the station medical officer, the doctor, and admitted everything. But I said during the interview, I said, I fear I'm going to do something stupid. And he thought I was going to talk myself. Yeah. I was actually talking about going AWOL, you know, about um, deserting. And it escalated. Before I knew it, I was in front of the station commander, the doctor, and the station warrant officer, a most formidable character. He's a sort of sergeant major of, of the RAF station, very aggressive we are in the station commander's office where a few months ago um, in January I'd been there to be presented by Air Officer Commanding, one of the biggest awards you could be given in civil um, um, times in the military. And here I am back and I remember saying, you don't see the same confident corporal right in front of you as was here in January, sir. The station commander said, we're going to have to let you go. I don't understand why I'm doing this. I'm just losing a good man. I don't understand why I'm forced to do this. That must have in itself been a bit of a weight off your shoulders. It was um, a very emotional occasion. I think everybody in that room was pretty emotional. He said, which was astonishing at the time, he said, I just want you to go back to your partner um, and we will contact you when we're ready to let you go. But in the meantime, you will have to clear out your rooms and take your, your personal stuff away. And he looked at the station warrant officer and said, I do not want to hear that this man has been bullied in any way. I do not want anything to happen to him, from him leaving this room to coming back in here to hand over his warrant card and leave the service. And this hard, hard man with years in the military looked up and he, he had tears in his eyes and he said, Sir, there will be no repercussions. Nothing will happen because my son's gay. And you could have heard a pin drop when you said that. Wow. That will stay with me for as long as I'm on this planet. I'll never forget that moment.
Still to come, what happened when Martin, at a much more junior rank, came out to his superiors? That's next, after this. Man fans, if on occasion I make reference to a specific piece of foreign culture that you just wished you could watch right now, if only it weren't for those darn geoblocks, well then may I heartily recommend to you NordVPN. NordVPN allows you to access TV shows, news websites, sports and movies from over 59 different countries by changing your virtual location. You can even pay for streaming platforms at a lower price than the one back home. Plus, it's great for using on public Wi-Fi systems like in airports and cafes to keep your data and emails secure, all without slowing down your connection. You just switch it on and away you go. Head to nordvpn.com TMM. That stands for the modern man. Uh, or use the code TMM to get 73% off your two-year plan plus four bonus months for free. But be quick, because this offer is for a limited time only. That's nordvpn.com slash TMM. Let's jump back into Martin's story. He's now in his early 20s. It's still illegal to be gay in the military, but he's an army musician. And at the weekend, with his friends, he lives the life of an out gay man. Now, there comes a particular point where this thing then overtakes me. I just remember... Travelling back to the school on the Sunday night on the train and thinking, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this at the weekend and I can't parade on Monday morning like nothing's happening. Because you're playing two different characters. Yeah, yeah. And that really frightened me because for the first time I kind of realised that um, you're two different people. And this is not going to end well. And neither of them is honest, really, are they? That's the thing. You know, you say you found yourself at the weekend, which I totally understand, you know, from a position of feeling a personal liberation. But at the same time, you can't really be honest about what you do for a living there. And that's what you're doing five days a week. (laughs) And of course, at the school, you can't talk about who you're in love with. No, I, I just remember waking up this morning and there's a kind of chain of command that you go through um, when you want to see somebody or you've got a problem or whatever. And I went to see my section commander and I said, listen, um, I, re- I really need to see the boss this morning. And he's like, what do you mean you need to see the boss? Why? What's wrong? So I said, oh, I can't tell you it's personal. And he's like, personal? There's no such thing as personal in the army. What's the matter with you? Tell me and I will tell everybody else. So I said, I, I just can't. So he was kind of like, do you need to see the doctor? So I said, no, I need to see the boss. I want to speak to the boss. And who is this boss? He was... Um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel. He was the commandant of the School of Music. He sits on the higher echelons in, of the military at, 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 the, at the HQ and all that kind of stuff. But not the kind of guy you speak to very regularly. No, in your position. no, no, no. In fact, if he walks, if he's coming down the road, you'd probably cross the road and walk the other way. So obviously, you get your best kit on and off you go. And I was just thinking, oh my god, I, I, you know, it's shit or bust now. Um, you know, <laughs> it, you, it's got to happen. You've got to do it. And I was just shitting myself. And um, we got there and the Sergeant Ranger said to me, "Um, what are you here for? So I said, I I really need to see the Commandant. I've got a personal issue. So he's like, okay, they go the other way first, don't they? They So you got somewhere pregnant? I was like, no. (laughs) He's like, "Uh, what? And I said, I'd really like to discuss it with the Commandant. 
at that time in the military, it just didn't happen like this. It, it, you know, he's kind of, you tell me, you tell me, you tell me. And before I knew what was what, it was out. Um, so I said to him, look, I'm gay. And he, he just, I remember his eyes going like that. It was just like, I beg your pardon. I said, yes, sir, I'm gay. I need to see the commandant. Yes, you fucking do. And I was like, ooh, now I know that it's happening. Um, so in I go to see the commandant. Left, right, left, right, left, right, and all this kind of stuff and halt in front of him, salute him. And he's sitting there with his cap on and he says to me, yeah, what's, what's wrong? What's the problem? So I said to him, look, look sir, I, there's no other way to dress this up. I've got to tell you, um, I'm gay. And he looked at me and he just sort of took his hat off and he put it in his in-tray and he said to me, listen, young man, I really want you to think about what you're saying. I'm going to give you five minutes to turn around and go to the other side of that door and think about what's happening here. Now, I didn't have a clue what he was talking about, to be honest. But when I reflect on that, what a gentleman, what a nice man. He's actually saying to me, do you realise you're chucking your career away here? Yeah, do you know what the consequences are? Yeah. And he's also saying, look, of course there are gay people here. We don't talk about it because we're not allowed to have you here. Yeah. So I'll just pretend I haven't heard that, isn't yeah. he? He's giving you that opportunity. But of course, I go outside for five minutes. The sergeant major follows me out. He's not letting anything go at all. He's in my face. He's, you know, you, you fucking get back in there and you make sure you tell him you don't change your mind. You're out of this army. We've got no space in this man's army for any puffers and all the rest of it. Well, it's done now, isn't it? So I might as well just carry on. So in I go. And he said to me, I'm really sorry to hear this. Um, you're a really promising musician. We really, really like what you do. You're a great sportsman. But my hands are really tired at this point. You know, I have to place you under close arrest. You will be investigated by the SIB. We don't have any facilities to detain you here at the school. So you will be transported to Hounslow Barracks, where the Welsh Guards are. Um, and you'll be held in the guardroom there until decisions are made. And I just knew that meant hell because I'm now back into the army environment, the Welsh Guards. So right. the guard room is like it's their on-site prison that's run by regimental police officers that are pulled from the regiment, Xboxes and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is where you'd go, presumably, if you'd smuggled in drugs or cut someone's face, right? Yeah, fighting, anything like that. Any, anything, this is where you'd go. And they do this thing called beasting. Um, so you kind of you've, you you wear this kind of really shiny helmet. You carry shells, big shells on your shoulder. You don't have any laces in your boots, and you wear green overalls all the time. Um, and you're marched to doubled to meals, and then marched back, and just taken PT, 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 cleaning, PT, cleaning. Hours and hours and hours. And then when 10 o'clock comes and you, they're locking you in, you're so grateful because you just you just collapse. But then again, the system starts all, all over again at 6 o'clock in the morning um, with inspections and, and drilling and bullying and, and all this kind of stuff that goes on. Ken didn't face an ordeal like that. He was now living in Ballam with his partner Colin. But it wasn't over for him either. They looked at my record. They looked at my history. They looked at the awards and said, we don't believe you they didn't believe I was gay. <laughs> so they started an investigation. I had to prove, the, the, 
the nonsense, the bizarreness of it. There's me for years denying everything and hiding everything. I now had to prove to the special branch of the military police that I was gay, having spent years denying it. What possible reason would you have for saying that you were in that environment? Yeah, when you when you sign up, you sign up for a period of time, and it was three years, six years, nine years, and I'd served up for, I'd signed up for nine years. Yeah, so you're trying to get yourself off. And it, well, there was a big thing then of people it's called PVR, uh, Purchase Voluntary Redundancy, where you could buy yourself out. But they were so short of military personnel, and the conditions at times were less than ideal. You know, they, they, even to this day, living conditions in military bases can be pretty grim. Uh, so they thought that I, like many, were trying to find a way out of getting out without paying. We had a knock on the well, I had a knock on the door. Colin was working, and here were these two plainclothes military police officers. Uh, with a warrant to say we are here to interview you. Colin is where he was he was awaiting in a restaurant around the corner and he got dragged out of the restaurant. A civilian dragged out of the restaurant by plainclothes military police to answer questions and it would be things like describe what you do in bed together. You know it's a, you, you the audacity of that. How bloody dare they we had to go through that. There was a, a nonsense and a glitch in the law at the time that if you were in a, a shared accommodation, so we were in a, a, a room of three other rooms with other people, if you're in shared accommodation as a, a gay couple, you had to have a bolt or a lock on the inside of your bedroom door for fear of offending public decency suit a flatmate inadvertently walk in on you. That was the, the audacity of, of people with clipboards telling you how to live your life, how bloody dare they but that's what we went through how was your record marked in the end when you were discharged it it was um discharged due to circumstances beyond his control well if ever there was a true statement it was that but all my colleagues couldn't understand what happened i was i was a golden boy you know i was, I was the one that's destined for great things and suddenly disappeared. They, they, and they weren't allowed to contact you. They, they weren't allowed any communication with you whatsoever. And to this day, there will be people I served with that won't have, have a clue what happened to me. People that I sat and ate with, that we'd clean the weapons with, that, that we'd, we'd stand in howling gales together, protecting things with. Wouldn't be have no idea why I suddenly disappeared off the face of the earth. So you were there one day and then you were gone? Gone, yeah ripped away from something that was such a huge part of your life that you're so proud of that suddenly didn't want you anymore. Um, you weren't good enough and you were so embarrassing you had to be smuggled out the back door and hidden away and, yeah, forgotten about. Was there any element of self-loathing as well? You'd made the decision to join the RAF police in the first place that you thought you could somehow beat the system. Did you blame yourself at all rather than the institution? Yes, I did at the time. I, I, and I think that's why they were so lenient on me because I I stated that I didn't want anything to reflect onto the Air Force. I didn't want to bring any shame onto the Air Force. I just wanted the matter dealt with quietly. So I was, I was there for a couple of days and what they decided to do then was they... For some reason, some strange reason, they sort of said, um, listen, we need to check this out. We're not quite sure whether you're swinging the lead or not. So what we're going to do is we're going to send you to a psychiatric hospital at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Woolwich. It's a locked psychiatric unit. 
I'm thinking, well, it's got to be better than here. <laughs> I arrived there and luckily, you know, a couple of the nurses that were there and, and sort of said, oh, look, forget all this nonsense. Okay, just try and calm down. The doctor will see you tomorrow. Can we do anything to help you? And I was like, well, no, not really. I just need to chill out a bit. And they're like, yeah, fine. We get it. What year was this? Um, this was 1992. I mean, what you're describing is kind of like what you would have expected in 1962. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, was, it was the same right the way up to 2000. So I went in front of the commanding officer again, and he said to me, look, will you accept my award or will you go to court martial? And that's a whole another load of crap you don't really want to get involved in. So I said to him, no, I accept your award, sir. Expecting him to say, um, there's a the door, goodbye. And he said to me, um, well, we're going to give you 48 days close custody um, and you'll be transferred to the Military Corrective Training Center. Prison. Prison, Colchester. Um, now that, I just, my heart sank. I, I just thought, oh my God, what, why, what? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd kind of opened up. I'd been truthful for once in my life. Um, and now there was a price to pay. And believe you me, you know, I thought I'd understood how evil and twisted and bitter the military could be up until that point, until I got there. And I was separated. I was in a single cell on my own. I wasn't allowed to mingle with the other prisoners. I was marched separately to meals. It's built to be totally overwhelming to all of your senses. It's designed to disorientate you. It's designed to humiliate you. And these guys that are in there, um, not the soldiers under sentence, these blue caps, these prison officers, if you like, they're just evil 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 people and I'm, I'm which sure... makes sense if the point is to reintegrate you into the armed forces doesn't it like actually if the point is you've got involved in a fight or you've done something you know that antagonizes the enemy and you've you fuck something up yeah but we're going to punish you and then you're going to come back it sort of makes sense but in your case as you said you'd you'd been honest and you wanted out. It's not like they were going to reintegrate you afterwards. It was just a humiliation, right? Yeah, it's total humiliation. I think because of my basic military training, that got me through that. Um, And then I left there and I was in a god-awful state, really. How did you feel? Uh, Relieved that I was out of that environment. I felt... I'd let myself down in a massive way. I'd lost my career. And you're how old now at this point? Um, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. The matter wasn't over for Kevin either. Having been outed, then ousted, from the job he'd wanted since he was a child, he turned to legal action. I wanted to stay in. That was that was really what I was fighting for, was the chance to stay in. It took 13 months before eventually I exhausted all the avenues I could to try and prevent me being thrown out. And, um, and then September 95, I was actually administratively discharged. That's where things moved on into pursuing things through the courts and, uh, you know, ultimately ending up in the European Court of Human Rights. We were arguing that it was that breach of human rights to discriminate someone 
based on their sexuality for their employment and their fitness to serve the country. Had you been advised that you were going to win, though? Did you think you were going to win? <laughs> the lawyers were, I think, fairly blunt and honest about it and said, you know, this it, this will be a difficult case to win. You will have the weight of the UK government and the Ministry of Defence going up against it, arguing, you know what the regulations were, uh, and so on and so on and so on. So this was... This was in 2002 when they actually ruled on my case. By then, the UK armed forces had already legalised being gay within the armed forces in January 2000. So, you know, by then they had effectively already admitted that there was no bar to LGBT personnel serving in the armed forces. But you're only 35 at that point. So, Uh, yeah. Yeah. Did you think... Well, I'll try and go back. Would you have wanted to have gone back? I'd already, at that point, retrained and qualified as an accountant. I had moved on. The life I had wasn't quite the one I had pictured, but I had moved on. Um, It was challenging leading up to that point financially because I was still learning i was you know i was only able to take relatively junior roles in accountancy because you know i was the new boy you know it took a long while to make up the the financial deficit so things were certainly tough for a while when the court case was eventually decided yes there was a financial settlement as a result of that it was nothing like what the legal team had suggested might possibly be available they had numbers that, that valued my pension loss alone in the millions. How much did you get? Um, it was about 115000 I think it was. So, you know, it was enough to clear the significant debts that I had and to sort me out on an even keel. But that wasn't the end of it. After Kevin had put his head above the parapet at the European courts, there followed a two-page expose in a Sunday tabloid. My ex-wife sold her story and it was full of how this evil RAF person had abandoned her and the children and and so on. And uh, um, yeah, it wasn't the the friendliest of, (laughs) of, of stories. And I remember I drove to work and I sat in the office car park for about an hour in my car, just shaking in my car, until eventually I thought, I've got to go in at some point, even if it's just to get my P45. And so I went in and my boss was in and I went in to see her and I said, look, um, I've got something that I need to tell you. And I explained, you know, this story has appeared in the mail on Sunday. You may have seen it. And uh, she actually did get the mail on Sunday, but it was very much a non-event. But it triggered you. You were having the thought that you could get fired from your Again. current civilian job in 2002 because yep. the newspaper's written that you're gay, basically. Yep. And, you know, I was proven completely and utterly wrong. There were no issues at all at work. In fact, it helped me become liberated and that much more active in the support of the inclusion and diversity message that the company was given. You know, I... I will stand up and give inclusion and diversity messages all day long now (laughs) at my place of work. And, you know, I've been recognised for that. Even though you had that judgment from the court, and even though it was so long ago, do you sometimes still feel that injustice that you were really good at your job and you had to stop doing your job for nothing to do with your job? 
and actually nothing to do with the law, just the yeah. law of the institution you happen to work for. Definitely. I've not been properly recompensed for what was taken from me. There have been many times over the years where I have thought, oh, I miss, I, I really miss the Air Force. I, I, I miss the camaraderie, the, the, the atmosphere of being on a squadron. I never met my full potential in the RAF because I was always distracted by something else. I was living in fear. I was never able to be my true self. It's a high demand environment. You can't afford to be distracted in any way, shape or form. You need your full capacity to be a good soldier, sailor, airman. I always had some of that capacity elsewhere. Um, because I was hiding myself. One of the few people I still have occasional contact with um, from my RAF days, he used to be uh, an engineering officer who was in the room next door to me at Kinloss. I think he was assistant chief of the defence staff was the last, or something along those lines, the last time I, I saw him. And, and I did jokingly say to him, you do realise you've got my job, that could have been me. And part of me thinks, you know, that could have been me. Um, if if I'd have been able to be my true self. This Remembrance Sunday, for the first time, Kevin, Ken and Martin will join the march past at the Cenotaph, where an official wreath will be laid representing the thousands of veterans forced out for being LGBT. These days, Martin is a trained mental health practitioner with the NHS. Ken and his partner Colin now run a venue in Soho. I turned 60 this year. We inherited, Colin and I inherited the Phoenix Arts Club. We, we had no notion of what it was to run a pub. What do you think now when you see those young LGBTQ plus patrons? Do you think, God, they've got an opportunity I never had? Do you feel jealous? No, not at all. I, I, I look at it the other way. I, I think that's the reason I joined the Air Force. That's the type of world I wanted to protect. That's the type of society that you wear a uniform for. The military should reflect the society of defence, and that that is why I am still proud to say I served in the RAF. Ken Wright, Martin Diver and Kevin Baisley. British Forces Veterans. Our thanks to the military charity Fighting With Pride for putting us in touch with them. You can find out more about their work at fightingwithpride.org.uk. Still to come, Alex Fox answers your sex questions. That's next, after this. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Time to get deep into the foxhole. Your questions of sex answered 
with Alex Fox. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ollie. I must please excuse me. I am more knackered than a gangbang porn star's knackers. What have you been doing so exhaustingly? Well, I had to um, host a panel talk uh, because the new season of Sex Education has just come out on Netflix. Where Congratulations. I'm very proud to be script In consultant. Which you're yeah. Yes. Uh, but it means that I'm doing lots and lots of public speaking at the moment. And I learned right. some stuff myself. For instance, did you know, Ollie? Sally Ride was the first American woman to travel into space in 1983 when I was a whole mm-hmm. one year old. But during preparations, NASA, who you'd think would be like quite like clued up on elements of the human body, right? They're quite smart people. They were confused about how many tampons she might need in space and they uh, to, to handle a week long rocket trip. They asked if a hundred would be sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> And interestingly also, they have NASA have this guy who's called their chief sniffer. And his job is to smell everything to make sure that its odor won't become overwhelming in the in the small confines of a of a tin rocket. And so Great he had cut. to he had to sniff Sally Ride's tampons to make sure that they um yeah, they weren't gonna upset anyone's nasal passages. Right, time for your questions of sex, brought to you by our friends at thehandy.com. Not only the most powerful male masturbation machine on the market. But I'd argue that it's also the most customizable. You can finally tailor your automated wank experience to your precise wishes. And this month's question comes from a man in his mid-twenties who has chosen to go by the moniker Worried Wanker in West Watford. The alliteration is already turning me on. He says, I have a high sex drive and I'm fairly active in the kink scene. And luckily, five years ago, I met someone who had the same interests as me and with an equally high sex drive. It's all coming up Millhouse so far. Prior to lockdown, we would do things like go to kink parties with like-minded folks, have sex around four to five times a week, and generally live our best sexual lives. However, at the start of lockdown, she lost her job. And being in lockdown, it led to some quite bad depression. So to try and help with everything, she started taking an antidepressant, a decision I was completely on board with. I've taken them in the past myself. They worked great for her, generally lifted a mood, but with one side effect, it basically stopped her desire to have sex. We've always had a no-wank-in-the-house rule. And when we were both always game, this was never a problem. However, since she's been less interested in having sex, I've been having secret shower wanks to release some of that sexual energy and send it down the drain. I've tried to bring it up and ask if she still wanted to keep this rule, and she said that the idea that I would have to wank as she couldn't perform makes her unhappy. Alex, is this a sustainable situation? It feels bad to lie to my partner. Nope. Not sustainable. And that's my answer. See you next month. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's tackle, first of all, this no wank in the house rule thing, because that's an odd parameter perhaps to have established for themselves right off the bat. I was chatting to Scroobius Pip from the Distraction Pieces podcast about this, and he joked that that their garden must be an absolute mess. (laughs) Um, Seriously, though, I mean, it sounds like this was something that they decided together and it was a a rule that they made that was designed to keep their partnered sex life peppy it was working for both of them as he says but I do want to challenge this idea that you're not sufficiently dedicated to your coupled copulation or somehow like wasting your sexual energy if you masturbate Mm. when your partner is around masturbation for a lot of people is a de-stressing thing it can help them sleep it's those physical purposes that are quite Mm. personal there 
aren't necessarily emotional at all. I mean, is he exactly. saying for him, he's got a high sex drive, it's literally a case of getting the energy away. Some people wouldn't want to have partnered sex and essentially, quote unquote, use their lover as a human form of night hole, you know? <laughs> I don't want anyone listening to think that if they are in a relationship where they also masturbate, then that must mean that they're not sufficiently turned on by their partner or sufficiently committed to keeping their sex life peppy. Although that said, if you are in a relationship and you are masturbating a lot, it probably is down to sex drive, isn't it? And that's what he's hinting at here. It's down to the fact that probably your partner isn't always interested in sex as much as you are. We've dealt with this on the show before. And in this case, you can see why the no-wank-in-the-house rule worked when they had an equal sex drive, and now they don't. It has generated this issue. I don't think somebody wanking always indicates that their sex drive is higher than that of their partner. It might just be that wanking fulfills a different, a totally separate need for them. Sometimes it, you want a delivery from Tesco. Sometimes you want to explore the farmer's market. <laughs> Precisely. Let's get into the nitty gritty of how depression has changed this particular couple's dynamic. Mm. Um, for starters, it would be remiss of me not to mention that you don't have to necessarily accept that taking antidepressants will have a, a bad effect on your libido. It's very common for that to be experienced, but there are medical workarounds. Certain types of medication tend to have a lesser effect than others on your sex drive. Talk to your doctor and they might say that you can actually take a little holiday from your meds. So you're still experiencing enough of the positive impact that uh, you're not going to fall into a terrible hole of blues. Something that works for one person won't work for another but I just want to give this couple those things to consider and speaking of consideration when I read this question I already had my own response in mind but I thought it would be an interesting experiment to open this up to my audience on social media and get their responses and I have to say Ollie some of them really shocked me the breadth of the spectrum of how people interpreted this situation and what their recommendations were blew my tiny little mind. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, there were a lot of people saying that they thought the no wanking in the house rule was a terrible concept even to begin with. But what surprised me was the number of people who saw that as a real red flag in terms of a partner being controlling. Um, to my mind, worried wanker from Watford and his partner agreed this together. It was a mutual thing that at least at one point in their relationship, they both found enjoyable. Another reaction that I got from a lot of people, sadly, is that they perceived the girlfriend as being quite selfish. I had comments like, if someone feels sad because they don't think they can satisfy their partner, then that's their feelings to deal with and they shouldn't be putting that on their, their other half. Some people even went as far as suggesting that the girlfriend's need for control, as they perceived it, bordered on abusive, that she was policing what her partner could do with his body in his own time and being emotionally manipulative by saying, it hurts me, it upsets me. I really think they do need to talk again, but they need to take a little bit of a different tack here. For a start, their situation has changed. So that rule, or let's not call it a rule, let's call it a game, that game of no wanking in the house has stopped being fun for them to play. And in fact, both of them can't be in the game anymore. One of the players has been taken out by depression. Him wanking in secret is making him feel bad. So continuing that is not a good idea. 
her suspecting that he might be wanking in secret and feeling terrible about the fact that she's, in her mind, pushing him towards that, that's making her feel bad. Her feeling like a whole sex life is on hold because of her depression, that's also making her feel bad. Everything in this current scenario is not serving either of them. Finding a way that they can both reach their individual levels of satisfaction that they need and are capable of right now and perhaps somehow feel connected in doing so, I feel is the most constructive way that they can go forward from here. And that means addressing the fact that depression is making this person feel unreasonable and upsetting things. And that's unreasonable and upsetting for them both. But they really need to remember that they're in this together. I see so much hope here, but I also see a situation which could become toxic if they don't take their next steps with compassion. There might be some physical things that they can do together if she feels up to it. A lot of the people I spoke to who had had depressive episodes said to me that they required, again, they totally accept that this is needy, but de- depression does make you needy. It's that they just required their partner to tell them that they still found them attractive. And one person, this won't work for everybody, but one woman told me that she really liked her partner to gently come on to her. So she still felt that he was interested in her, but they had had a conversation where they'd agreed that she would always have the option to say, I'm not in the mood. Thank you for trying to involve me in this. I look forward to a time when I'm ready for it again. Uh, And they experimented with things like cuddling while he masturbated. So she felt like she was a part of it. Or sometimes she could give him direction. She felt able to tell him sexy things to do, even if she didn't feel sexy enough herself to participate more fully. And gradually doing those more minor things together, if you will, helped them both and helped her with her depression. Well, best of luck with that, worried wanker in West Watford. Um, And if you have a question of sex for Alex Fox, then send it through via the feedback form on our website, modernman.co.uk. And thanks to our sponsors for the foxhole, thehandy.com. Now, we've mentioned before that you can sync up The Handy with all sorts of video content that's available at connectmyhandy.com. The company have now decided to collaborate with a lot more different adult content producers. So there's going to be more for you to enjoy. They're building up to having uh, over 300 free videos, all sorts of different genres. So no matter what your taste, hopefully there'll be something there available for you. And intriguingly, Not only are they teaming up with people who make virtual reality porn, but they're also in cahoots with gaming companies. I really want to see what happens when you combine people who make games with people who make masturbation machines. Maybe finally our joysticks will be able to be used as joysticks. Yeah, Grand Wank Auto. Uh, Well, (laughs) you can check it out yourself by going to thehandy.com. And yes, don't forget to use the code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E, for free express postage. Thanks, Alex. It's been a pleasure. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this month's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Sandra from Christchurch, Barbados. Uh, She says, Ollie, I love your show. It is my favourite podcast, hands down. I've been listening for a few years now, so I'm sorry that I've only now got around to sending you some beer money. Better late than never, Sandra. Uh, Can I please be the ambassador for Barbados? If it's already taken, I'll settle for the parish of Christchurch. I am eagerly awaiting this year's Christmas episode. Aren't we all, Sandra? Bring on Bournemouth. 
feels like a, an odd thing to say to someone who lives in the Caribbean. But anyway, congratulations. I hereby appoint you ambassador for, yes, the whole of Barbados. Forget the beer, make mine a pina colada. Uh, if you would like to be a ambassador, just buy us a beer, drop us a line, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, who wants it to be known that he endorses reusable nappies. And we will see you with something new on November the 10th. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.